This is a Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library. Welcome to library. My name is Troy Swanson. I'm one of the librarians. And uh, welcome to our third event in our series on the autobiography of Malcolm X. Um, the first two speakers, we learned about Malcolm X. And the second speaker, we learned about um, uh, Islam and the Muslim faith, which are two of our key themes. And now we're going to uh, talk about one of our next themes, which is the 1960s. Um, I'm very happy today to welcome um, our featured speaker, um, who is Dr. Lendl Calder. He's an associate professor of history and uh, is a history department chair at Augustana College in Rock Island, Illinois. He holds a Ph.D. in history from the University of Chicago. He is the author of numerous publications, including the 1990 book, 1999 book, Financing the American Dream, A Cultural History of Consumer Credit, which was hailed by the Wall Street Journal as deliciously seditious, which I thought was funny, so I thought that was good. Uh, not only is he an accomplished scholar, but he's a great teacher who was chosen uh, by the Carnegie Foundation to be a fellow at the Carnegie Academy for the Scholarship of Teaching and Learning. Uh, he's a friend of mine and a mentor, and I'm very happy to welcome Dr. Wendell Calder. Thank you. Thank you very much, Troy. Now, is this microphone loud enough for everyone to to hear? We're going to play some music today, so um, that's important that the sound quality be good. I have here a student paper from 10 years ago written by one Troy Swanson, who was a student in the first class I ever taught on the history of the 1960s. First thing I notice about this paper is my name is misspelled. Word to the wise students, when you write a paper for your professor, you want to get that name spelled correctly. But overlooking that, this is how Troy opened his paper. History is an abstraction. We all understand in our own way. Each of us builds his or her own, own idea of what history is. Each day, whether we realize it or not, we live through history. The closer we are to the past, the more out of focus it is. The closer we are to the past, the more out of focus it is. Truer words were never spoken about most periods in American history, but not the 1960s. There, in fact, I would say that Precisely the opposite of what Troy wrote in his paper is actually true. The closer we were to the 1960s past, the more everyone told the same story. And the farther away we get from the 60s, the more complicated and out of focus the stories are becoming. Today, I want to talk about some of these new stories that scholars and others are telling about the 60s, what we might call the other sides to the 1960s. The man who wrote this book, I think, would understand where I'm coming from. Malcolm X told his, his biographer, Alex Haley, my life has always been a life full of changes. And the same is, is true of our understanding of the 60s. I think it's wonderful that Moraine Valley Community College chose the autobiography of Malcolm X to be their read for 2007-2008. When I'm teaching this book, or any book for that matter, 
What I like to ask students is this. If this book is the answer, then what is the question? If this book is the answer, what's the question? Now, I suppose to most students picking up the autobiography of Malcolm X, the question is, who was Malcolm X? To teachers who've read the book 10 times, 20 times, to educators like myself, one of the questions we think this book answers is, what is the value of books in a young person's life? What's the value of literacy? To activists reading this book, I suppose the question might be, where do we go from here? Because you can get plenty of ideas about where to go from here by reading books from the past. But when I pick up this book as a historian and as a scholar of the 1960s, the question on my mind when I read the autobiography of Malcolm X is, what is the story of the 60s? What's the story of the 60s and where where are we going to find Malcolm X in that story? That's my topic for today. Now, I suspect that you have a story about the 1960s in your head, even if you've never really thought about it that much. So, if I were to ask you, for example, what the most popular song in the 1960s was, I don't know that you'd have the right answer, but I bet you'd have some pretty good guesses. Who's up for the game? What do you think was the most popular song of the 1960s, the song that sold the most copies to paying customers? Who's got a guess? Satisfaction by the Stones. It's a great guess. Other guesses. Something by Bob Dylan, Blowing in the Wind, anything by Bob Dylan. No, it's not too early. Good guess. Got a third guess? Yes. Anything from the album? Sergeant Pepper, one of the most uh, iconic albums of the 1960s. That's a great guess. These are all rock and roll songs, and they indicate what kind of story you have about the 60s in your head. And they're all wrong. The most popular song in the 1960s wasn't a rock and roll song. This is the most popular, as in best-selling single in the 1960s. Something we all know about the 60s was that music brought a generation together. A famous critic once said that America is a nation with the soul of a church. And if that's true, in the 1960s, music was the sacrament that brought a generation together. So your guesses were good guesses, but in fact they were wrong. There were other kinds of music, even more popular, 
to audiences in the 60s in rock and roll. And so the number one best-selling single of the decade was Percy Face, theme from the movie A Summer Place. First recorded in 1960 and then covered and re-recorded almost countless times until the very present day. I can't make it stop. <laughs> Why aren't you stopping for me? <laughs> Where's the stop button? It was there a while ago. Oh, well, we'll just get rid of it that way. <laughs> I don't mean to downplay the importance of rock and roll music. It was huge. But we can't let ourselves be lulled into thinking by our nostalgia for an era that it was the only music that was important to people in the 1960s. And perhaps you're thinking right now, well, hey, Percy Faith, that was music for old people. And the 1960s wasn't about old people. Everybody knows it was about youth, the so-called Pepsi generation. All right, well, I'll give you another quiz. You may have heard this song, Barry Maguire's Eve of Destruction, was the fastest rising single in rock and roll history in, in late 1965. Penned by a 19-year-old kid named P.F. Sloan, Barry Maguire recorded it, and the song went straight to the top in three weeks. It opens with this funereal kettle beat of drums. And there had never been anything like this on the radio. The big hits of the previous year, 1964, were all dance songs. In three minutes, Barry McGuire gives a history of everything threatening to blow the globe apart in 1965. The following summer, right here in Chicago, Chicago's leading rock and roll station staged a contest for students to pick what they would call the song of the summer. Barry McGuire's song got second place in the contest. Gee, I wonder what the first place song was in the summer of 1966 as chosen by Chicago's youthful radio listening audiences. Here it is. And hold on, I think you'll be surprised. Fighting soldiers on the sky. Fearless men who jump and die. The Ballad of the Green Beret was written and performed by Sergeant Barry Sadler. Barry McGuire, Barry Sadler, the Chicago radio station called it the Battle of the Berries, and the Ballad of the Green Beret came out on top. Only 
How many of you have heard the ballad of the Green Beret? I see all the boomers holding up their hands, but none of the young people, and that's, that's my point today. There are other sides to the 60s than the one that we've learned in school and from popular culture. This is one of those other sides, and it's worth paying attention to if we want to understand our present. Where do these stories about the 60s come from that young people today have in their heads for making sense of their recent past? We come from a lot of places, but two in particular that I want to draw attention to are textbooks and popular culture. I know something about what young people believe is the story of the 60s. Every summer I go down to San Antonio, Texas to read advanced placement papers written by students who are trying to place out of college credit. And three times in the last six years, there's been a question on that test about the 1960s. So if we want to know what the story of the 60s is that really, really bright high school kids have right now, I can tell you what it is. Here's the story of the 60s as taken from real student responses in papers that I and my colleagues have read. And it's okay to laugh at these. The 60s were after the 50s and I think before the 70s. I'm going to come back to that one. It's the most interesting of all the responses to me as a historian. In the 50s, it was the job of the males to get the meat. Females were treated as pets. By the mid-60s, women were burning their bras and showing they had a lot in them if only it could be let out. Another student writes, bras blazing, more and more women began entering the workforce. Now that's a picture. Women no longer wore clothes, writes a student, clothes that covered their bodies. Then they went out and applied for jobs. Another student, now men could stay home and ruin the kids while the women worked. Moving on to race relations, a student writes, if racism were a pimple, the 60s would be the time the zit popped. With civil rights legislation passed by Kennedy, there was now one drinking fountain shared by all the people. Martin Luther King was assassinated, not murdered, but assassinated as only a great man can be. Much of the writing on the 60s is about baby boomer rebelliousness, like this. After the U.S. had pulled out of the Civil War, the sex drive of so many veterans coming home resulted in the baby boom of the 1960s. NASA, JFK's brain shell, landed Louis Armstrong on the moon. The Soviets could now only brag about their repulsively attractive women. If only the Slavic beauties could have seen Elvis. Another writes, many teenagers in the 60s began to explore themselves and others. <laughs> there was much drug use, drug use, writes 
a high school junior, much drug use and unsafe sex. No other decade had even thought of this before. So apparently sex was invented in the 1960s. Music is a popular theme in young people's memories of the past. As one writes, in the 60s, musicians were playing with themselves. Another says, the music went from, I want to hold your hand, to, I want to rip your head off. And my favorite sentence written by high school juniors, the number one song of the 60s by the Beatles was a hit called, Hey Dude. Final assessments on the 60s, one student summed it up for all of them when he or she wrote, in the 50s, women always made dinner on time. Then those damn hippies came along and dinner has been late ever since. If we pay close attention to the story being written about the 60s, even the silly story of these candid remarks by the juniors, a master narrative about the 60s can be discerned behind the silliness. That master narrative would go something like this. In the 60s, white middle-class hipsters became rebels with maybe too many causes. In the 60s, they let it all hang out and made love, not war. Where does this story about the 60s come from? It comes from textbooks that the kids are reading in high school and from popular culture. Let me say a word about the textbooks. Recently, a scholar of American history has examined 11, the 11 most popular high school textbooks, looking to see what story the textbooks narrate about important periods in the American past. What Van Gogh's found was that when it's the Civil War, when it's the American Revolution, when it's the early 20th century progressive era, the textbooks don't agree on what the story is. There's only one era in the high school textbooks where every textbook is on the same page and telling the exact same story. And you guess what that era is? It's the 1960s. In fact, the consensus is so strong in the textbooks, they even recycle the same photographs and the same quotations from famous 60s people like Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. 1968 in the textbooks usually demarcates a line between an earlier good 60s and a later bad 60s when everything goes to pot. So the 60s in the textbook is a story of radical and liberal social movements led mostly by white middle-class baby boomers. It starts with John F. Kennedy, then it's the civil rights movement, then it's the anti-war movement, then it's the women's movement, then it's the gay liberation movement, and then everything implodes in the 1960s and disco is born, perhaps to save the day. We might call this story, People Gotta Be Free. Where baby broomers grow their hair long, stop wearing bras, raise holy hell while they groove on acid rock, drop LSD and fight against authority in general and the Vietnam War in particular. 1968 happens, 
and everybody just goes crazy. The radical hippies go to Woodstock, or at least they want to, and then in the 1970s, they all wake up with a terrible pounding hangover and overnight go from being hippies to yuppies. That's the story of the 60s told in the textbooks, and we see it not surprisingly showing up in what really, really bright high schoolers write for their AP history exams. Now, it's true there are other stories about the 60s that circulate in popular life today. Outside of the textbooks, aging leftists from the 60s tell a story of the revolution that never happened. And on the other end of the political spectrum, irritated right-wingers tell a story of how the Frankenstein monster of permissiveness was born in the 60s by elites who turned against America and unleashed permissiveness onto succeeding generations. But that's outside the textbooks. In the textbooks, you see very little of those stories. And there's almost nothing in popular culture to dispute the textbook stories. From movies like The Big Chill and Forrest Gump, quick, how many times have you seen Forrest Gump? To TV shows like American Dreams and the NBC docudrama The 60s, the same story is recycled again and again. And lately, where we see this story most prominently is in advertising, which has recently discovered the purchasing power of boomers as they head into their retirement years. Here's Easy Rider himself, Dennis Hopper, plumping for Ameriprise. They're impossible. That's what they said back in the day, and your dreams changed everything. That's not going to stop now. You don't turn your dreams over to the authorities at age 60. You find someone who believes in your dreams. Start with your dreams. And your Ameriprise financial advisor, working with you one-to-one, face-to-face, will help you plan to make your dreams realities. See, the thing about dreams is they don't retire. Your dreams are crazy. They're impossible. That's what they said back in the day, and your dreams changed everything. It's the same story. Baby boomers with their idealistic dreams now taking their dreams into the retirement years as yuppies. The myth is flattering to the boomers. The myth of their idealistic 60s when they changed the world gives them something to boast about against their parents, the so-called greatest generation. The myth of the 60s also gives baby boomers a club to beat up succeeding generations with, Generation X and Generation Next, your generation. Have you noticed how reality shows feature this dynamic where aging baby boomers make fun and bow and criticize your generation's performers, telling them that they're not any good? That's the dynamic of all of these reality shows where judges evaluate up-and-coming talent. But a new generation of historians just in the last decade is finding that our conventional notion of the 60s have left a lot out. Consider these scenes from the spring and summer of 1963. Florissant Missouri outside of St. Louis. 500 protesters 
stand with picket signs in front of a public school. The picket signs have angry slogans because the people are upset. The state legislature has refused their demands asking for busing. None of the protesters are black, though. In fact, they are Catholic parents upset that the state legislature will not use publicly funded buses to take their Catholic children to Catholic schools. Later that summer, in California, 87 rampaging radicals barge into a private home and take over a political meeting of the California Republican Assembly. The marauders turn the furniture upside down. They spill the drinks. They take ketchup bottles and spray the walls. They leave the private home covered in filth because they believe the Republicans meeting in this home represent elites who are trying to take America away from the working class people that these radicals represent. But this is not a local chapter of Students for a Democratic Society. The radicals who are pillaging this home and taking over this Republican meeting represent a group called the John Birch Society. Third scene in Rogers, Indiana. Clamoring members of a group called Young Americans for Freedom have built a bonfire into which they are throwing wicker baskets made by a local company. The Young Americans for Freedom claim that the baskets were in fact not made locally, but by communist workers behind the Iron Curtain in Eastern Europe. Young Americans for Freedom is a group of young conservative activists who will soon put Barry Goldwater into the race for the presidency in 1964. Three scenes. Radicals with picket signs. Radicals trashing a home. Radicals having a bonfire and calling for change outside the existing political system. All scenes from the 60s and all scenes completely left out of the standard textbook and popular culture understanding of the era. Ten years ago, Alan Brinkley, a prominent American historian, summarized these scenes as the problem of American conservatism. And the problem was there were no conservatives in the textbooks when we come to the 60s. Hence, no way to understand our present. Young people today must find it awfully hard to understand why their elders get so upset and hate either George Bush or the Clinton so much when all they have in their heads about the 60s is a story of a radical and liberal, aimless era where students marched on behalf of causes. What they don't know from their textbooks is that the class of 1964 had two people in it, not just Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton, but George Bush as well. In the 60s, one might argue, belonged to both. For a long time, historians left conservatives out of the 1960s for a complicated set of reasons. When I went to college in the 1970s at the University of Texas, 
conservatism was described by one of my professors as, quote, a series of irritable mental gestures resembling ideas. With that understanding of what conservatism is about, people can almost be forgiven for not wanting to study it or include it in their, their historical writing. You almost would have to hold your nose in order to engage with the conservative. One of our first historians of the conservative movement writes that to historians of the 60s and 70s and 1980s, conservatism was a problem for abnormal psychology, not for historical scholarship. And so when 1980 came around and Ronald Reagan was elected president, to most historians, that came as an unbelievable shock. Ronald Reagan came riding into the White House literally out of nowhere because in their historical understanding of the previous two decades, conservatives didn't exist. So where did Ronald Reagan come from? Things are different now because the last 10 years, one of the hottest areas of historical scholarship on the 60s has been an attempt to write conservatives back into the decade. In the first round of scholarship, much was made of what we now call backlash theory, where conservatives were understood to be reacting against people like Malcolm X and Martin Luther King, manipulated by a small group of conservative East Coast elites who preyed on the masses' thinly disguised racism to create a new kind of Republican resurgence. But 10 years of historical scholarship in the 1990s has effectively put that old backlash theory to rest now. In the new picture, the rise of Ronald Reagan is now understood as a social movement just like the social movements of civil rights, feminism, and the anti-war movement. This social movement called conservatism was not just about racism. Conservatives in the 1960s actually began organizing before the New Left. They organized more successfully than the Left in the 1960s. And when the Left was splintering apart in the late 1960s, conservatives were effectively mobilizing the imagination and the dreams of millions of Americans. Understanding how they did that has become one of the more exciting projects in historical scholarship at the present moment. I think this project is important, but I, I think it leaves a lot out of the picture of the 1960s, too. For the last 10 years, since Troy sat in my first 1960s class at Augustana College, I've been asking my students to interview their parents, like this woman you see here standing in Muskogee, Oklahoma, at a high school commencement. I've been asking my students to interview their baby boomer parents and their grandparents and write the history of the 60s based on what they learn. And what they're learning and what I'm learning from them is that a focus on social movements, either of the left or the right, leaves a lot out of the picture. There's a great silence in our understanding about the 60s that is embodied, I think, in the picture of this graying elderly baby boomer who grew to maturity in that era. And my students are helping me and other scholars to recover it. Who are my students' parents? 
They're what Richard Nixon famously called the silent majority. And while activists on the left and the right were loud and proud in the 60s and 70s, these folks were quiet and felt unrepresented in the political spectrum. My students' parents, born between 1945 and, and 1964, are middle class, solidly middle class, both working class middle class and professional middle class. Some are wealthy in the upper middle class, some were actually poor and came a long way in the economic boom of the 60s, but most of them are exactly in the center of the demographic mainstream. <clears throat> Interviewing their parents, what my students find is that for most of them, the so-called 60s, the mythic 60s, it never happened. If I can quote one of them. Our perceptions about our parents' generation are as distorted as the drugs they never took would have made them. <laughs> as distorted as the drugs they never took would have made them. In fact, out of 180 case studies of the 60s that I now have archived, I don't have a single instance of drug abuse in the lot. I have one student whose parents became active in the Civil Rights Movement and went to Mississippi in 1964 for Freedom Summer. One student. I've got a handful of others who went to a political rally once or twice. I've got one student who organized door-to-door -door for Barry Goldwater in 1964. One student out of 180. The rest are somewhere in this silent middle and their stories are stories of hardworking people who married right out of high school or college, had children, got up every morning, went to work, came home, and lived mostly uneventful lives. And their stories are so compelling. Some of them are racists, just out-and-out -out racists. While watching the Eyes on the Prize video series with my class once, we viewed a sequence filmed by a Chicago TV station in 1962 where black activists moved one black family into Cicero, a suburb of Chicago, as you know. And as we watched the TV footage unfold, we saw some white toughs enter the home of this black family and begin throwing all of their furniture and clothes out of a third-story window. The TV reportage focused on the face of one of these white toughs. And from the back of my room, I heard a student say, Oh my God, that's my father. I didn't believe her. I thought she might be mistaken. So she took the eyes on the prize clip, went back home to Cicero, and in the hospital where her father was dying of cancer, she showed him the film clip. Yeah, that was me, he said. And he told her how a, a white kid in Cicero entered the mob and became a mob enforcer when he was 15 years old. And on the orders from the local mafia, went to this house on that particular day and convinced the black family it wasn't a good idea to try and integrate Cicero. <laughs> 
The stories are compelling, even when they're terrible stories like that one. But most of them are of a gentler, gentler nature. What I'm learning from these stories is this. Most of what was important to people in the silent majority is left out of both the mythic history of the 60s and the new histories that historians have just recently begun to write. For example, extremely important in many of the stories I'm reading about is in a, a momentous gathering of Catholic bishops called Vatican II. Because of Vatican II, Catholic ritual and practice was completely transformed and it literally changed the lives of, I would say, a good third of the people in these 180 histories that I've been able to archive. That's a story left out of the, the textbook stories and the newer stories. The second story that's left out is the story, the economic story of the 60s. Because most historians tend to be liberal and left, they scoff at what conservatives take very seriously, which is the economic organization of society. And curiously, they have moved away from the less traditional preoccupation with the economic organization of society to focus on cultural matters. And so the economics of the 60s goes unremarked and unstudied. But I'm learning that the economic 60s is extremely important because if anything characterizes their stories, these members of the silent majority, it's a story of affluence and how it cocooned them into suburban lives where they were safely isolated from the mainstream political events of the era, like the civil rights movement. Until we understand the consumer story of the 60s, we can't understand what happened in this momentous decade. As one of my interviewees says, the 1960s? When I think in the 1960s, I think of Johnny Carson. Now that was the 1960s. She's not wrong to report that. That was the experience of most of my 180 interviewees. We look to the past and to history to make sense of our, our present. The myth of the 60s that I've talked about today is more of a hindrance to understanding our present than it is a help. For conservatives, it's a terrible hindrance to how they understand the 60s. For conservatives, the myth of a revolutionary 60s is very important because it justifies their counter-myth of a successful counter-revolution embodied in Ronald Reagan. For conservatives, the 60s was a time when loonies, college professors and others, enacted a coup on mainstream America leading to mistakes which needed to be corrected by conservatives in the 80s and to the present. As an example of this story told by conservatives, this is my favorite. In the 1988 election, George Bush Sr. claimed that the legacy of Ronald Reagan was that Reagan had changed America from a nation that enjoyed films like Easy Rider to a nation that enjoyed films like Dirty Harry. From Easy Rider to Dirty Harry, that was Reagan's legacy, said George Bush. Now, I'm not sure why that's such a good thing, frankly, <laughs> to go from hedonism to reactionary vigilanteism. I, I don't know why that's a good thing. But putting that aside, George Bush's history is terribly skewed. 
What year was Easy Rider? 1969. What year was Dirty Harry? 1971. Only two years separate these two iconic movies, and they're both 60s movies. Ronald Reagan had anything to do with Dirty Harry. It was way before he became president. So, the mythic 60s is a hindrance for understanding our present, and not just for conservatives. On the other side of the spectrum, for people who are liberal or on the left, they cling to the myth of the 60s for their own reasons. The 60s, as they tell it, is this romantic fable of heroic citizen mobilization against racism and against sexism, against an unjust war. It was a time of widespread resistance, they say, and it's important to them that it be widespread because then it, it justifies their participation and their successful mobilization. It was a time where everyday people reacted against cultural regimes of authoritarianism, against educational policies that destroyed student initiatives, against restrictive gender roles and workplace discipline. But in fact, this reaction was not widespread. And for the most part, people on the left were talking to themselves. What I'm saying is no story of the 60s can afford to ignore stories like the one told by this woman in her interview. Stories that emphasize continuity across the so-called generation gap. I'm going to predict that historians, as they continue to study the 60s, will find the generation gap to completely evaporate and no longer be a useful prism for understanding what happened in the 60s. Our best social science data seems to suggest that there was no generation gap after all. And in fact, continuity marks the era as much as change. Deconstructing the myth of the 60s, I don't want to construct a new myth. I don't want to say that there was no change at all. I don't want to say that rock and roll music wasn't important or that this wasn't a time of incredible heroism by activists and creativity in the arts. But the myth of the 60s encourages us either to demonize or to deify our political opponents, and that's not a good thing. Recovering the history of people who are in that great silent middle, I think, can rescue us from demonizing and deifying. And this is where Malcolm X comes back into the picture. Where does Malcolm X fit in any new stories we're going to tell about the 60s? I don't know yet. It could be that he won't fit. It's interesting to me that in 180 interviews, Malcolm X's name appears once. But I hope we can find room for Malcolm X into the newer stories that we tell about the 60s. For this reason, a wise person once said, the voice of the poor is not always just. But if you don't listen to the voice of the poor, you'll never know what justice is. Listening to voices like Malcolm X is going to be crucial as we confront issues, unresolved issues from the 60s that continue in our own time. Whether it's poverty, 
or persistent racism of the kind we've been discussing in the last few weeks coming out of Louisiana or global environmental crisis, we will have to listen to this voice and all that he represents. And this voice and all the other voices that make for that very complicated story that we call the 60s. If I had to pick a song, coming back to songs, representing the 60s, the song that I'd like to rewrite into our stories would be this one. We don't smoke marijuana in Muskogee. This is Merle Haggard, 1969. We don't burn our draft cars down on Main Street. Cause we like to live in right and be free. We don't make a party. But we like holding hands and pitching woo. Thank you for coming today, and thank you, Troy, for inviting me to Moraine Valley. I've enjoyed uh, being here with you. Do you want to have some discussion? The question is, how do the 60s stack up against other important areas in terms of historical significance? There seems to be something about the 60s in American history, right? 1760s, a revolution. 1860s, a civil war and a second American revolution that it brings the end of slavery. And then 1960s, it's eerie. It's eerie. I think the 60s will continue to be told as a terribly, terribly significant era, although perhaps not for the reasons that we've understood it to be up until now. For example, right now, what most historians would say is the 60s were not a radical era. We, we, we understand that now. But it was a polarized era, as polarized as the 1860s or the 1760s. And out of that polarization came the movement that won, conservatism. That's a really different history of the 60s than what the textbooks even today say in high school, but that seems to be where the scholarship's going. I suspect that story is going to also fall apart, and I think 50 years from now we will not even talk about the 60s anymore. The, the quote, 60s will be a term nobody uses 50 years from now, I think. Instead, we'll, we'll see a post-World War period that lasts from 1945 to 1965, and then a huge divide there ushering in a new postmodern period of American history which we don't even have a name for yet and don't understand. That's my, that's my prediction. That's a good question. Thank you.
Here's a very interesting question. Uh, our, my questioner wants to know, why did I choose the 60s to talk about when the 1920s was also um, a, a, a time of important, very important social change? Two answers. I chose to talk about the 60s because Troy Swanson asked me to. But here's my second response. I wish you'd become a historian because I, I think I think you are absolutely right to think that in terms of cultural change affecting, say, sexual values and gender roles, the 1920s actually saw more change than the 1960s. Or consumerism, for example. The change from a, an industrial society where people had defined themselves by the work they did and therefore labor unions were important to a time when people identify themselves by consumer identities, you know, we're going to mark that watershed in the 1920s, not the 1960s. So you're absolutely right to see that the 1920s were an important cultural watershed. That, that you had a question. What uh, movie best represents the 1960s? The Graduate, it, it is suggested, which is being re-released for its anniversary this year, I believe. I just re I read a report in USA Today this morning about it. And I haven't seen The Graduate since I saw it in college. So I, I don't know. Have you? I don't know if it... I don't know if it holds up well as a, as a movie of the 60s. Um, okay, I'm going to go watch it. Um, my wife never wants to watch it with me when I suggest The Graduate. So I'm going to make us watch it, and, and then I'll have a good answer to your question. But have you seen it recently? No one who saw that can forget it, right? You cannot hear the word plastics ever again after seeing that movie. So I suspect that it, it is important. But my, my vote for best... Uh, movie of the 60s would be a, a very little known film called Billy Jack. Do you know that movie? Billy Jack's a Native American, goes to Vietnam. It's the first Vietnam War mo movie to, to take the war seriously. He comes back to the reservation. We see the social movements of the 60s, but then there's all this tension between what's going on, in the, on the res and mainstream Americans back in town. And growing up in, uh, in Oklahoma, that, that always struck me as being right on for what it felt like to be in Oklahoma. Uh, it's a complicated movie. You know, it, it was never a simple one. And if you haven't seen Billy Jack, I'd recommend it, although it's hard to find. And there were two more Billy Jacks. So it, it was a movie that actually had some purchase at the time. Yes? The question is, what do I think was the most important problem of the 60s? 
I'm going to take my cue from Martin Luther King on this one. African Americans were fighting for the ideals of the American experiment to be realized for their communities. Women were fighting for the same. Gays and lesbians, the same. Native Americans, the same. Hispanic Americans, the same. Conservatives, left out by the liberal consensus, were fighting in the 60s to realize their ideals. There's a lot of fighting going on by uh, activists on the margins. And to me, the most that makes the most important problem of the 60s and today the problem that Martin Luther King gave his life trying to resolve. The problem of how does one achieve a spiritual discipline against resentment so that you can be successful in the political sphere with your ideas. How do you... The spiritual discipline against resentment is a phrase that comes from Niebuhr and was a very important concept to Martin Luther King and his theological training. <clears throat> he tried to create a massive social movement where people would not consider themselves moral just because they were victims and therefore would not hate their oppressors. That's a lesson everyone with the grievance I think has to wrestle with if they want to be successful or if they want to take their own moral universe seriously. And it's an incredibly, incredibly difficult problem. That's, that's, that's one man's answer, my answer. Thank you very much. I enjoyed being here.